0: Charm, wit, and deadly assurance, Roger Moore steps in as a suave, sophisticated, and lethal agent 007 in a thrilling, high-powered showdown with an infamous drug lord who's determined to eliminate Bond and conquer the world, making its premiere in London and opening on the UK on the 6th of July, 1973, having opened in the USA earlier on the 27th of June, Living Let Die is the eighth James Bond film, costing $7 million to make and making $126.4 million at the worldwide box office. Starring Roger Moore, directed by Guy Hamilton, the vital statistics are romantic interludes between two consenting adults, three, <laughs> martinis, <laughs> martinis zero, kill six, Bond, James Bond's one. Back in 1973, Variety said, Living Let like Die introduces Roger Moore as an okay replacement for Sean Connery. The script reveals the plot lines have descended further to the level of the old Saturday noon afternoon serial. So, to discuss Live and Let Die this week, we have Ben Williams, Phil Nabil Jr. and Sean Longmore. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys?
1: Absolutely. Hey, uh, great to be here again. Um, my name is Ben Williams. I am a writer for MI6HQ.com and MI6
2: Confidential Magazine. I'm Phil Nabil Jr., editor of Fangoria Magazine, and James lets
3: me talk about James Bond on this podcast. Hello, I'm Sean Longmore. I'm a graphic designer and sometimes does like pretty Bond pictures online and things. And... I also like talking about James Bond. I'm in the right place, I guess.
0: <laughs> Funny that. So, um, live and let die. Uh, we'll kick off with the motif. What's the one thing you could uh, hang your hat on for this film? If you imagine a poster, what would you put on it? If you close your eyes, what's the thing you see or hear when you think live and let die? You would describe this film to a casual moviegoer as the one with...
1: Um, the one with the exploitation all right um and i'll i can explain i guess i can expand on that and be yeah it, it's very much a, a a film of its time and black exploitation films were obviously very uh big at that in that era as well and it feels very much um in the same way that moonraker is a kind of a um a cash in so to speak or or at least a, a nod to Star Wars. this is very much an um eons nod to the to the exploitation films of the of the period and um and their success uh it certainly kind of dates the film and puts it you know in a very particular um bracket kind of uh, in terms of uh the the genre that it's kind of trying to emulate um but I think it, because of that, and and, uh, and my my belief has always been that uh, Bond films kind of are, are a mirror to our, um, to our interests in society, into you know what what uh, is is kind of drawing our attention for entertainment. Um, so this is a, a prime example
0: of that. Um, of you know reflecting what uh, mm. society wants. Do you think it's the first Bond film where they chased a? genre trend
1: uh that's Mm. an interesting question um and i guess i guess the answer is i'm i'm not really sure because i haven't really thought about it that hard but uh, certainly does sort of seem to be around the point the tipping point of them when i say them like Ian productions not leading anymore but kind of looking to um to what was popular yeah,
3: mm. I t- I think the thing with that question is is at what point did sort of the spy genre catch on, and at what point does James Bond in a sense become chasing its own genre
0: and start taking chasing boxes for the sake it, of? Yeah, you, and, you only live twice. I think <laughs> for me, <laughs> is that when it starts becoming uh, yeah,
1: like like a Matt Helm film in a way, or uh, you know, it it's it, it starts to parody itself a little bit.
0: The snake eating his tail yeah. by that point.
2: Phil or Sean, the one with? I got you. It's, it's the one with, and I just thought of this now, and so it might be completely wrong, but let's try it out and see what happens. Uh, it's the one with Fleming's eye for other cultures. Mm. And mm. what I mean by that is that Fleming is obsessed with uh, the places that he visits. Like He has such an eye for the detail, and he's so... The, the, the push pull of Fleming for me was always he's so fascinated by these cultures while also feeling above them and, and a little, uh, you know, judgmental of them and a little snobby about it all. And in the films, the, the fascination with the, the place, the exotic place, tends to not quite translate all the time. It's sort of like the, uh, you know, the Jamaica or the Bahamas of it all sort of get out of the way for Bond and get out of the way for Sean Connery. Um, to a large degree. And, and you could argue that you only live twice as the one that tries to, you know, go harder in there. But again, it just feels like it's, it's all at arm's length. But in, in this film, the Harlem of it all, and the, the Caribbean voodoo of it all is very much insists on imposing itself on bond. Mm. Do you know and what Louisiana I mean?
0: Louisiana as well, to some extent.
2: Yeah. Even though that, that's, yeah. I mean, I don't know that 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 would be Fleming's version of the South, but yeah, the, the, it feels like the place becomes a character in, in a way that the places have not been allowed to become characters prior to now. So I think that's significant. Phil, I did
1: a piece, I think probably my first piece for MI6 was on, um, Bond's New York, um, or Mm -hmm. maybe even Fleming's New York. I can't remember precisely. Um, but Part of it was mapping out all of the the, the different locations um described in uh, you know the short stories and in, in the actual books like so you could you could basically plot a walk to where yeah, Regis are. and whatnot yeah mm-hmm. so I actually did the harlem escape uh scene uh and had to kind of walk it backwards from the description of the book um and one of the things in, in having kind of undertaken that exercise was very much a feeling of Fleming being very absorbed in this city and this and this subculture as well, if you want to call it that, or you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, Scene. yeah, and, and um, I, I think it kind of underscores what you're saying. It's it's very much a uh a a character within within his his stories and this is really i guess like the first time where you know that is made very apparent rather than just as you say just kind of strolling in and being very kind of um touristic about it
2: yeah, I mean there's there's an imperialist angle to a lot of the Connery stuff when he goes to Jamaica or he goes Ooh. to the Bahamas. Um and and by the time you get to Honor Majesty's, it's it's very much just backdrop to a, a bigger fantasy where you know I don't feel like I saw everything there was to see in, in Peace Gloria uh in On Her Majesty's. But there's something almost wide-eyed about Roger Moore's Bond in this first one where he's really taking in these things, and these things are sort of insisting on him and encroaching on his his sort of personal space in a way that, that, uh, you know, give or take a, a drunken reveler in Thunderball, <laughs> uh, mm. y- you haven't seen prior to now. So my mm. random unprepared thought for that question. Often the best mm-hmm. ones.
0: Thank you. Sean.
3: Uh, I, I'm going to go maybe a cop out answer, but the one with what might possibly be the best bit of recasting in movie history. Boom. And Felix. I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I'd, like, I'd like to talk about Roger in a bit anyway so I won't go into too much detail but um, I, I, just, it, this is, I think it's so easy to forget because the film makes it look so effortless that if they'd have got this wrong it would have been game over for good after mm. the reception to Honor Majesty's Secret Service at the time bring Connery back and say no if they had cast someone who didn't fit in this film the whole franchise would have just been over mm. there and then mm. And I feel like we kind of forget it because it's so effortlessly handled.
0: Yeah, I mean, you make a good point, Sean, because there've been three changings of the guard in successive films mm-hmm. at this point. I, did, right?
3: it's, it's, it, I feel like it's this is the last sort of chance you've got to say to the audience, stick with us, we, we know what we're doing. Right. right. Because when you're flip-flopping backwards and forwards, it can be misleading. how
1: they would yeah. open it up on here it, on this kind of uh you know bedroom farce then really you know right. and, and a and a pre-title sequence
2: that doesn't have bond in it
3: <laughs> you know it's kind just... of like a
2: it is a weird yes. it is a weird way to debut a character uh, a recast that's for sure mm.
3: it's 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 kind it, it kind of works so there's a kind of confidence to it I guess um and it, you kind of get the feeling that <sighs> Roger Moore I don't want to say he's not trying because he really is but he just like he just effortlessly wandered onto the set picked up the script and started reading the lines and like he plays it like he's been playing it for 10 years and I guess that's because he's just mm. being himself I hate
1: to say it Sean but there's we do this in categories right so uh we get down to after the cocktail we get to the underappreciate underappreciated element <laughs> and essentially um, everything that you have saying right now is what I have written down about Roger Moore um, I, ca- I wholeheartedly agree with you It's um, he's, wow. he's fantastic in it
0: you got about 10 minutes to think of some more answers than that so. ah, <laughs> no, I'll just say the <laughs> same thing no I'm no, no listening to this James it's yeah. oh, my mum all- uh, <laughs> the one I would throw in is the one with the most dressing gowns <laughs> I think he has four, doesn't he, in this? Wow. Four. There's the brown one, the blue one. At the hotel in San Monique. Mm. Yeah. There's, there's yep. a few. There's got four might be an under undercount. We'll have to check. So, um, the Bond cocktail. Um, you can break the Bond films down to a formula, according to reviewers. So, um, here are some categories. Teaser titles, plot women, villains, allies, Bond action locations, dialogue, and anything else, we'll call it style. Is there, uh, what is your favorite element of the Bond cocktail, um, for this film? What's unique, um, particularly unique about this film it could be cos- positive or negative. So, who wants to pick out an ingredient to discuss?
1: Well, um, I'm ready to go. So, if, if everyone's pausing, um, for me, um, I would say, and this is, sort of touches on something that Phil said earlier, but, um, it, the plot for me is very close to a Fleming plot, you know, in it throughout um, certainly like some of the, the shorter stories and and some of the earlier fiction, the idea of, um, you know, the Soviets um, infiltrating the States or Europe through uh, means of uh, drug warfare um, Mm -hmm. that was sort of present um, in Riziko and uh although slightly differently uh with goldfinger it was again it was like this plot to kind of um you know saturate uh the united states with with kind of you know drugs or money that would would ultimately kind of uh uh, be like a destabilizing uh piece of warfare and um so for me the you know this this A lot of people have said, "Oh, it's not a very sexy Bond plot because a bit like, um, you know, License to Kill, it's just drugs, and you know that's all it really is. He's just a drug dealer." But actually, I think it ties very closely to sort of Fleming's idea of, um, uh, you know, this this uh, drugs being drugs or other things being used as a sort of a a covert weapon to kind of weaken. not just kind of economically, but but socially, um, America. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of of that in there, and I think also it does follow um, pretty closely um, Fleming's uh, story, um, so to speak. There's there's a lot of elements of it in there, um, and so for for me, that's that's the nicest element in the in in a movie that i think has got a great deal of flaws
3: <laughs> oh, oh sorry. Sorry, Sean. no i Go was ahead. just gonna say just while we're talking about that how do you guys feel about all the supernatural stuff that's in the plot
0: yeah i think we discussed this on the watch along that it's like is voodoo and the supernatural actually canon is it canon in the james bond universe uh is it a real thing in the james bond universe
1: uh, yeah, um, well, I mean, is there any actual instance of
0: Samedi I mean, C- C- like, not dying? Well, yeah, you've got Baron Samedi, right, coming back from the dead. You've got. So that, was, um, that was
1: sort of shown as a trick.
0: And then if he's sitting mm. on the front of the train, is that
2: not. But
1: more-
0: then he went
2: to a coffin full of
0: snakes. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also Solitaire's foresight, right? Or third eye, or whatever you want to call it. That's true. Where, yeah. She, yeah. where she predicts that he'll, you know.
1: It's just a load of Barnum
0: statements. You know, like it's, all it is. it's like, oh, does anyone
1: here have a name beginning with J? Oh, right. I'm sensing there's a J in the room. Oh, there is J- James. Is, is there a James there?
0: <laughs> anyone can do My
1: that. My grandfather's
0: name was James. <laughs> did, he, did he fly over water and bring destruction? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> but what a great little sequence that is. We should mention, I love that use of the way they, um. Oh, it's like nice. It's like
1: Indiana Jones, isn't it? With the map and the mm-hmm. um, the overlay, you know, the... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, a, it's a last it's gasp of the Peter Hunt uh, style. The editing fun. style. Mm-hmm. But it's a lovely way to advance the plot forward and, you know, so you don't have to have all of this... Uh, it, you know, reveals character and tells you that, you know, Solitaire's really good at what she does and, and is actually doing this, although one might say that <laughs> anyone's going to get on a plane and they're going to have to come to America. Le- island. It, they live in an island. And he <laughs> comes across <laughs> water. <laughs> what
2: are the odds?
0: Right. It's,
3: it's, a, it's sort of a great visual sort of setup though, isn't it? It's a great way to do exposition um, just yeah. in a very short amount of time and to kind of set the scene within what, 30 seconds that it is. And where in a lot of other Bond films, you kind of just get him. Going well, play, she's, she's not really describing
1: so you- the fact that he's on his way there. So one that's building threat, right? You know, building conflict between <laughs> you know Cananga and Bond, right? She's also mm-hmm. revealing her powers, right? Mm-hmm. She also is revealing that Bond is a threat as well. Mm-hmm. And so all of this stuff done in less than sort of twenty seconds of dialogue, and and
3: you know. Screen time. And mm-hmm. great music. And great music. Yeah. Great music. And it's it's establishing the tarot cards as well as being something that's gonna be particularly important.
0: Right. So if it's not if if the supernatural isn't um a real thing in the Bond universe, at least Kananga thinks it is mm-hmm. and Solitaire thinks it is. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. that's true.
1: If it is a real thing, does that mean Craig's ghost? Right. <laughs> <laughs> is is being tormented eternally?
2: You
0: know, he's going to appear on the front of a Royal Navy frigate <laughs> 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 at the end credits. Awesome, love it! And he's going to go. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Phil or Sean, what would you like to throw in?
2: Well, my my, the thing that popped into my head first was you. You know, I think uh, Ben said plot, but it's not quite the same as plot, but script. Tom Makowitz is clearly having a great time crafting this thing. And there's an energy to this script that, um, I don't think Moore ever gets again in a weird way. There's an enthusiasm to what's happening. And, and there's a, an arch kind of fun to the proceedings that I think, uh, gets kind of, gets kind of sanded away, uh, fairly quickly in Moore's run. But I think it's the script might be, and the energy that it brings might be the reason that this is, uh, Mm. This rates, you know, highly for me in the more canon generally, but um, kind kind of as a hangover
0: from Diamonds, the same kind of, wit. a little
2: bit, a little bit, but something about this. Maybe it's the cast, maybe it's the Roger Moore of it all. This feels like a better fit than it did in Diamonds, to me. The J.W. Pepper thing, the the I don't know the the humor of it all in in terms of uh like you said the 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 draw the what'd you call it. Bedroom farce at the beginning, all right? He's hiding. <laughs> yeah. He's hiding his his consensual uh, relationship uh, in the closet while money, money pennies over. And the, and the, the coffee the coffee making exchange with M. There's a there's a weird, f- funny, droll energy to all of it that kind of wasn't there. You felt the the seeds of it maybe in in Honor Majesties, and and you saw an attempt at it with Diamonds with Charles Grey for sure, but. To me, the Tom Minkowitz energy really blossoms in this one. Mm-hmm. Sure.
3: Yes. Um, well, I, I'll add that. Add to that as well that there's a really good sense of pace, I guess, to it as well in how it's all edited and sort of put together. When the film stops um, to take a sort of breath, um, it doesn't stop in the same way that Diamonds stops where two characters Mm. suddenly have a very backwards and forwards shot reverse shot kind of conversation. It kind of, there's always a sense of momentum that's going and then particularly once, um, Bond takes solitaire from San Monique and then the whole movie essentially for the majority of it becomes one long chase from there. So there is, there is a great speed to it. Um, uh, in terms of my pick, I I was going to say some more about Roger, but I guess we've already kind of said all that um roger's my favorite bond he's great here um so i might have to just go with style which is the cheating answer mm-hmm. and say that it, th- this is my sort of this is my favorite of the hamilton movies and just in terms of the visuals there's this is something a lot brighter and there's a lot more color on screen and it's it there's just there's a there's a confidence and it suddenly bonds in america but you're very aware bonds in america in a way that you're not sort of you don't kind of consciously pick up on when you're watching um goldfinger and diamonds are forever and i say this having just watched diamonds are forever about two hours ago um mm. living that die kind of establishes the setting a bit more and isn't afraid to there's almost there's almost a little bit of like a seventies pop artiness to the whole film, and there's a there's a lot of red in the set and in the costuming, in a way that the Guy Hamilton films usually for me feel pretty sort of brown, whereas this one Earth, doesn't earthy yeah, mm-hmm. um, and and also it's it's not afraid at all to be contemporary, which I really like, um, and I like that the seventies. The kind of we've got this in 73 and the Moonraker in 79. So you've got two very sort of 70s contemporary films at either end of the decade. Um, and it's sort of really interesting to, as someone who wasn't alive during the 70s to then see this as a sort of time-catchable um, in a way that some of, the, some of the Bond films try not to sort of set themselves in the year quite so right. much. Um, so I, I, I guess it's just a, a style that's got confidence the whole film, and the way it's shot, does just have a sort of strikingness to it, which I really appreciate. Definitely, it's and it's it, on the style tip. It's the, I think it's
2: the best Roger Moore has looked in the series too, in terms of like his clothing and the, and the different variations of it. That Chesterfield coat, oh, and on, it's so all, good. it's all on point.
1: That outfit arriving in New York is just uh, yep it's just perfect isn't it the gloves the the t- everything just superb
3: yeah. i think oh, the the, the costume in throughout is actually just magnificent like all of solitaire's costumes besides that hat she wears at the end are all tremendous sure <laughs> and that costume change
1: basically when she's sitting in the chair mm-hmm. the costume and then she steps out of it and she's in a, like a lounge kind of outfit mm-hmm. it's just such an incredible transition of um yeah, costuming.
3: It's it's beautiful. the The movie does it. It's one of the more good looking, beautiful entries in the Bond franchise. It's not afraid to kind of be a bit glitzy. Like I guess even Yaphet um, Koto gets some great costumes, and that he gets that great black suit at the end, which is, I yes. guess, it's kind of a play on Blofeld's suit, which we've always seen as traditionally being beige or grey. So, um, yeah, it's it. It just feels like a lot of thought went into the visuals in this movie in a way that. Probably doesn't in any of the other Hamilton films.
0: It's funny you mention red because that's the first color I think of when you think of the Die. Definitely, yeah.
3: It, 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 it's 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 yep. everywhere. It, it's everywhere. It's kind of just sprinkled throughout. And then of course it's all over the poster as well. That that poster actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. I don't know if this is the first time in Bond where we kind of have a very uniformed poster campaign across the world. Typically in the sixties, each country had its own different sort of posters right. and they were all very different whereas in live and let die it's that central key art image of bond coming out of the tarot cards with the boats at the bottom and that was used uniform and it's beautiful yeah. brilliant because you should almost do
1: a podcast about the art of bond Really, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be interesting wouldn't it i think people yes. would listen to that
0: i don't know the images are in their minds right <laughs> so um we mentioned a few things that are underappreciated um, but if you could pick out a single thing, either huge or very, very small that you would like to bring to people's attention next time they watch living that die, what would you like to, uh, stick a flag up?
1: I mean, um, look, I, I, I brought it up earlier and even though Sean, um, Sean has said that we've kind of said everything we can about Roger, I, uh, I, I think his performance in here does, it, it, it's worth, um, Bringing up again that he's he's stepping into some huge shoes, but he makes it seem completely effortless. Uh, you know, he he is filling a you know probably one of the, the the biggest cinematic roles, and but because of this wealth of experience, he just walks through it with ease. He's kind of like a you know a deadly Alan Wicker, or you know he's he's got that kind of. Um, <laughs> david niven kind of quality about him um and uh you know that easiness is something that uh you know in front of a camera is something that a lot of people kind of take for granted when they see an easy performer um they don't realize how much work kind of goes into into that um and how much pressure would have been on his shoulders to as sean said earlier to kind of you know keep this franchise afloat um and bearing in mind that he's 45 when he does this right it's it's kind of really interesting to sort of see where he goes with it and 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 he hasn't you know he doesn't know whether he's going to be more sean he doesn't he's he's still finding himself in this he does have a quality in this film that he doesn't have in any of the other bonds, which is this kind of fish out of water quality, which he brings with him to, to, um, to New York and, to, and, um, later on into, um, New Orleans. And it's kind of, you know, the, the only time his bond is kind of behind the audience in a way. Um, you know, if you compare it to Moonraker when he's, you know, pontificating about G-forces and all of this kind of stuff. Here, he's really, you know, out of his depth. And I think that's interesting to kind of contrast with the fact that he as an actor is jumping into a pretty deep pool. Um, But, yeah, I think he just does it with real kind of class and ease. There's – I think I I saw um, this mentioned recently, but – um, it's just this little glance that he does as he's being led out to the crocodile island um mm. where he notices the you, you know the speedboat just a it's just a tiny glance as um you know the that he's on his way to hit to meet his doom, and he's like, right, well, that's my escape route, and it's all just these little things that are kind of and, and you wouldn't pick up a, 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 at the time as necessarily as an audience because. You know, you're not, we're not in that DVD world of re- repeat viewings, but you watch it now and you, and he clocks it, <laughs> you know, and it's just a nice touch. Right. It's, it's like a, it's not even a, a close up shot. It's, a, it's like a, you know, a medium shot as they're kind of panning to, to the left as they're walking to the, the island or to get the, the, the chicken or whatever it is. And you see it, you know, you see it in the background, he just clocks it and he knows it's there. So I quite like that idea that, Bond is you know, his Bond is sort of just sponging in all of this information that's sort of around him um at any one time. He I, I I think it's an underrated performance. I think a lot of people have subsequently come to appreciate Roger Moore's Bond, but I think that there's a lot more going on that even people who are fondly remembering
3: it don't pick up on. Mm. I, I think it's interesting what you're I'd n- never thought of it like that before, Ben. And I guess what you're saying, in a way, is here we see as an audience, we're seeing his thought process as a secret agent. We're kind mm. of getting those insert shots that we're seeing Bond's point of view, in a way, and we're seeing how he's piecing bits together to work yeah. out what's happening or how to escape. And that's something we don't see in the latter half of Con- Connery's tenure because he just he does everything so easily and suave and confidently. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, Sean, sorry, Roger is, is being probably in some ways more suave than Sean in this, at this mm. point, but we are seeing him do that process. We are seeing him clock his surroundings <laughs> and take that information in. Whereas yeah, he, he's not a Superman yet, mm. you know, whereas Sean definitely was by the end of his tenure.
2: And it supports my my long-standing assertion that the the first movie these guys do is often their best performance, even if it's not the best movie. They're the best right. that they are in the first ones, just out of the gate. And I think that's true of Roger,
0: certainly in this movie. Mm. Yeah, Phil Sean, underappreciated element. Sean.
3: Oh, okay. It's it might not be very underappreciated, but I'm gonna go with the tarot cards themselves, um, just in terms of sort of how they look and. The design of them. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, they were specifically painted for the movie. Um, I think the artist didn't complete them all; he didn't have time. That's so right. there's only like 27 or so. Um, but then they were. I think the brief was from Harry and Cubby. Uh, yeah, Harry and Cubby. Sorry, that they wanted they didn't want something that felt stereotypically sort of black magicy because they didn't want to lean too heavily into that vibe. Mm-hmm. um and so they're they're very kind of traditionally painted, but just whenever they're on screen, just take them in, look at them um and the, the, each one's like a, just a really gorgeous sort of new painting, and then of course they went on afterwards the artist then sold them and they became they're a very established sort of tarot deck now i believe um, yep. so I, just 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 the art there I think they're beautiful sure
2: have you seen the ones that Salvador Dali allegedly made for
3: for the film. No, I don't think I have
2: the story. The story that I heard is that he was he he was asked to do it, but he wanted too much money, so they said no, and then he went and made them anyway and released them. <laughs> and and he the emperor card is actually Sean Connery, if you look. Like. Wow, oh, I'll check those. Yeah, out. it's easily Googleable, and I think Tashin sells the set. You can buy the the Dali set from uh, Tashin with a book. There
1: was there was like something like. 20 or 30 years between the point that he was asked to do them and yeah. their, their actual release, right?
2: It's nice to not have a deadline.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the, you know, the, the Peter goldfinger thing. And by then, the film had come and gone.
2: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, thanks. For, I never knew that, Phil. So thank oh, you for that. yeah, Google it. Just Google like uh, Dali Tarot and there's a whole story. I, the Smithsonian website has a big article about it. Smithsonian Magazine. I'll share it with Fantastic. you guys and you can
0: do a it. And Factory Entertainment re, uh, reproduced the Live and Let Die Tarot set. Mm. Couple a couple of times, times. right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a couple
3: I, times. I have the most recent box, uh, which has a few extra that I think they found the originals for. Um, they, were, mm-hmm. they were expensive because they're on the 007 store, but um, they're very pretty.
2: My underappreciated element, it's I think it's how subtle Q is in this film. He's just such a <laughs> new <nuanced. laughs> uh, It's like almost, a good referee at a sports game, right? If you don't see them, they're doing their job well. He's, yeah. he's, doing, he's so on point in this one. Yeah. Um, no, if I, I think my underappreciated element is something we were talking about before we hit record, is an uncredited job on the film, which is a 22-year-old Rick Baker, who did the uh, who did this sort of maybe not great makeup on Kananga as Mr. Big, but he also did the uh, Baron Samity head that gets the top of it blown off by Roger Moore and then the eyes roll up. Um, Rick Baker, uh, this was very early in his career, he went on to become basically our greatest living makeup artist. He won the very first Oscar uh, that was presented as a category uh, in 1981 for American Wolf in London. And I only found out maybe a year or two ago, I don't know, somewhere in, somewhere in the middle of covid that he worked on this film because it's an uncredited job.
0: And he yeah, was, it's, it's when it came up for auction, wasn't it? It kind of got revealed.
2: Yes, that's right. And then if you started poking around or actually it might've also been simultaneous with the, he did a two volume coffee table edition of all of his work. And I think some, some pictures in there of him working on the heads. Uh, he also did the, uh, the kanenga that blows up at the end. And there's some sort of, uh, unfortunate photos of, of that prop online. Right. Um, which you barely see in the movie, but he had done mm. like a really interesting sculpture of him. He he looks like Louis Armstrong, like blowing a high note. And he's all extended, but uh, you know, Rick Baker having this job and then just sort of no one knowing about it for decades for a horror crowd or for the makeup effects crowd is really an exciting little detail.
0: Mm. Excellent. So that bleeds into trivia. trivia. Yeah. I almost said yeah. trivia, but mm. then I didn't. <laughs> so Can you share a fact or tidbit about the film that you find particularly interesting? I'll throw mine in, which I learned recently, that for the snake scene in the hotel room, they filmed it in the middle of winter um, when it was like very cold because that's the only temperature they could actually handle the snake at because if it was in the summer, there's no way that they would have been able to film that sequence because the snake would have been too active.
1: Wow. Oh, so it was like a lethargic snake.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's the same as the sharks in Thunderbolt, kind of. Pretty sleepy much. Animals. Yeah. Sleepy, animals.
1: sleepy snakes. Bond is very fortunate with when he books his holidays, isn't he? Right. You know, just <laughs> good time. It's timing. very cold
0: in San Monique. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> stage D at Pinewood.
1: <laughs> I got. So my bit of trivia. Um, which isn't very exciting um but is that um we all know that Richard Dix uh stands stands there as the agent in the um in New Orleans in the street parade you know and gets his uh knife in the in the ribs and i believe that certainly Phil and myself have stood on that lamp next to that lamppost right Phil
2: um i don't know if i ever got the picture but i've been
1: right uh, so you know, just to kind of like set the scene of where we are. Um, and Shane Rimmer actually dubs his voice, which I, you know, I, I think is quite an interesting thing because obviously Shane Rimmer is, makes it his third appearance. Um, well, it would have been his second at the time, but his uh, overall third appearance in uh, in the Bond universe. Uh, first one obviously being Thunderbolt when he was a, um, one, one of the controllers um, at Mission Control, and uh, obviously is the um, submarine
3: captain in. Uh, so next. <laughs> um, well, would it, Wouldn't sorry? Wouldn't this make it his fourth appearance by the is, time in the franchise? Like, yeah, he in pops, you the he, well. oh, he's in twice as well. And he's in he's in Diamonds too. He dubs about twenty different characters oh, yeah. in Diamonds.
1: Does he dub all the characters in Diamonds?
3: He, he oh, the, male, so the male
1: like, it, Does he dub Sean Connery? <laughs> does he do a, I think he probably, I mean, if he does, he does a very good one and his money penny is, is perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, anyway, that was my bit of trivia, which, uh, yeah. it's wrong.
2: <laughs> I got too much goddamn trivia for this movie. I mean, I already used one as the uh, underappreciated thing, which is really trivia. but it's fine. um, so a while back, I, I found a used copy of Roger Moore's diary uh, that he wrote <laughs> while, while making. It was, it was maybe the most read article I ever published on Birth, Movies, Death. And immediately after it, like, it was selling on Amazon for hundreds of dollars. And I can't guarantee this is why they republished it. But a year or two later, they republished it. Probably because he died, not because of my article. But um, there's so much crazy stuff in that book that oh, yeah. I really recommend reading it. Um, it's called like the seven diaries or something now. But if you look Roger Moore, live and let die diary, you'll find it. But, um, just to sort of support some of what Ben was saying about this performance and about the, the, the choices and the detail that went into his first performance, I will just add the detail that he was racked with kidney stones while he was making this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was in excruciating pain for a good chunk of the filming. And, uh, I don't think you'd know it from watching the performance,
0: right? The other thing that stuck out—I read that book, re- I reread that book recently, for like a couple months ago—and so the thing that still stands out for me is what footage did he watch of the JFK assassination?
2: <laughs> yes, there's and a changed mind.
0: his mind about the single shooter theory. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, he goes. Jim Garrison, the the district attorney of New Orleans, who conducted his own investigation into the assassination of Kennedy, invited me along with a couple of FBI agents to his office to view some film. I am not at liberty to disclose what I saw, but it left no doubt in my mind that it was not Oswald who fired the fatal (laughs) shot. That's in the middle of a book by Roger Moore about the making of Live and Let Die. In 1973, like he's dropping that, you know, you might (laughs) say too soon. the secret footage is located. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: Is there a code, do you think, is the first letter of every chapter? The <laughs> location
2: in the secret. And he calls, he calls that uh, observation, an interesting
0: conclusion to 007's five weeks in Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> the other great thing about that diary is it puts to bed why there's an anti-aircraft gun on the poster. Was He was invited <laughs> to go to the ship, and they, they, they took press photographers with him, and they just took a publicity shot with him. It's nothing to do with the film at all. But one of those photos made its way to the artist's desk when they were putting together the composition. So
1: I didn't know that. That's enough. there you go. The the, the photo's out there
0: somewhere, isn't it? Oh yeah, we've got it. Yeah, but you know, it was (laughs) back in those days. I'm sure they just got a stack of ten by eights to work from, and it wasn't a set photograph. It was just something that when they're they're out and about, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You, that, you should
3: that make that. Sorry, you should make that photo the thumbnail for the podcast. There okay, you go.
2: We'll do. But that book is a like a splash of cold water in twenty twenty two. It is so candid. There's just whole sections devoted to busting Harry Salzman's balls. It's like weirdly <laughs> self deprecating. Like he he writes about having tantrums in his dressing room, about uh, you know his wife forgetting his birthday and stuff. Um, it's it's a level of candor that you do not see from movie stars in twenty twenty two. I think since
3: <laughs> yeah, since it's you don't see <laughs>
0: Sean trivia.
3: Ah, uh, huh, my term trivia. Uh, okay, so I initially my gut instinct was to do a bit of trivia that's for that also for that one person that listens to the podcast that watches Doctor Who and have a bit of Doctor Who trivia. Um, but yeah. I went with something else because I did that on. That's me when I listened back to this when I edited it. <laughs> well, well, Watch Revenge of the Cybermen. The little hairbrush from right. makes it in there and is very gratuitous, gratuitously showed off the camera. It doesn't fit at all in a space station no. in the future, but it's there. My trivia I'm going for uh, is actually that this I don't know how to word this in a way that's going to come across right. So this, in a way, is the what mo- or was the most watched movie screening in Britain ever, and still is. And what? So in nineteen eighty, January nineteen eighty, this movie was re was aired. It was a Sunday, and 20- oh, you mean on TV? Yes, sorry, on TV. Okay. Yes. and uh, twenty three million people watched it all at once. On ITV, which is about. Which at the um, time would have been just about half the British population.
0: Yeah. That's insane.
1: Yeah. Probably would have been me as
3: well.
0: Weirdly. You know? So to this, uh, that'll never be beaten though.
3: Mm. No, never, never. That, that, that is, like, if you think now, TV ratings, probably six or seven million in the UK is considered great, I guess, mm. about now um
0: so 23 yeah, and that's movies. usually for something big right and new not yeah seven year old movie in the afternoon yeah. on a sunday um so i i just thought that was that was
3: really interesting and i think, that's, I, I, I I think I, I, sorry but, i was just
1: gonna say sean i think it speaks volumes about what bond films
3: meant to
1: kind of the british consciousness mm-hmm. really you know that that bond sort of went beyond just a like an action franchise it it was a, a, a part of almost our n- national identity in a sense and mm-hmm. that played into the fact that we would watch it on a you know a Christmas or a bank holiday or wh- whatever it might be um and and so that it, it you know I think for particularly for for for, for British audiences that Bond has a a slightly different connotation than it might do
0: to uh, yes. everywhere mm. else in the world. It's interesting, cool. the timing of that, being 1980, coming off the back of the biggest box office for Bond in the UK, which was Moonraker. Mm. Yes. So you had a primed audience, and then they, they stuck Living Let Die on Still TV. And die. And got uh, I,
3: I guess this is where that whole... Bond is a bank holiday or Bond is a Sunday afternoon British thing. I suppose I you, was. Could, you could argue that this is where that it comes started, from. All it started people. in
0: 1980. I wrote an article for the magazine for a couple of years about it, about how ITV um, used the Christmas schedule to put a Bond movie on. Mm-hmm. And all but one year they had a Bond movie on Christmas Day or, there or thereabouts, you know, the like Boxing Day. Right. And it was always like the top performing, one of the top performing things of the year when they did it. And it got to the point where they just called it the Bond movie and then they would announce what it is. Not like we're going to show one, it's going to be a Christmas Day. Like it just became accepted that on Christmas Day you would get one. Right.
1: Oh. Yeah, I mean, I definitely remember as a kid just sort of saying, and then, you know, like you'd you'd plug it into your Christmas Day schedule. You know, you'd you'd have like... Right. Some Russell Sprouts, like,
0: Queen's Speech, Bond movie.
1: Right. And that was when you'd be all sort of, you'd probably be post-lunch, you know, you would feeling a... You've had your presence. You're just ready to let a Bond you've, movie wash over you.
0: You've thing. let yourself go a little bit too much. Right. You're feeling a little lethargic. Diamonds are forever. Right. <laughs> I personally think that Spy Love Me is the,
1: is the ultimate uh, bank holiday um, matinee Bond movie. Mm-hmm. That's what I would uh-huh. stick on on a, on a Sunday or a bank holiday Monday. That's my that's to, be, my to be discussed in a couple of weeks. Indeed.
0: All right. So, final verdict. This is a tricky one, I think, to pick for most people. Um, we're not saying there are bad Bond movies, but there are some that you watch more than others. Mm. Um, would you rank it top tier, middle tier, or bottom tier?
1: To me, it's it's a bottom tier movie. Unfortunately, even even though you know we've talked about. All of these fantastic elements it's somehow less than the sum of its parts um and i you know I know I brought up black exploitation as the first thing that I kind of talked about it with it, but I you know <laughs> to say that this is a problematic film is um putting it kind of wildly <laughs> really um and 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 to you know lay a defense of it is quite. Quite tricky. So for, for me it, you know, it's gonna it's gonna rest in that lower tier, um
0: occasionally I, fluctuating position. Can I ask you, Ben, have you ever sat down and watched it with Mel?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. Um, polite answer after the edit? Uh no, we haven't watched that film together. Um right. and I never will you know i would lose every single argument if i did
2: uh can i follow up yeah so for me it's high it's it's high mid or low high it sort of sits in that area for me depending on the mood i'm in or how how often i've sort of rewatched it or taken a break from it um i do not Give it a knock for being problematic. I think that we can't, we can't, I want to choose my words carefully. Edit out these silences, please, James. <laughs> um, we, we can't hold historical examples to a contemporary model of purity because every, eventually it'll all fail like in a hundred years, it's going to be weird that we had dogs as pets. It's just going to like, we eventually we're going <laughs> we to drank involve, milk
0: and we ate burgers. Yeah. It's, all going to be <laughs> yeah weird. it's
2: it's that needle will never stop moving. Right. So you have to sort of take things, uh, uh, conditionally. And 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 in, in this sort of context that they were created. And I think it's worth noting that, that this was a pr- pretty progressive, uh, step at the time. Um, to go back to that Roger Moore diary real quick. He, he says at one point that, uh, when he was on location in Louisiana, his wife was told by, by like ladies in Louisiana that if there was an interracial love scene, they wouldn't mm. go see the movie. And mm. he was like, personally, I don't give a damn. It makes me all, more de- all the more determined to play the scene. I think that they were, in their minds, they thought they were doing something progressive. And yeah, yeah. It's, um, that's not nothing
0: to me. Um, Intentions what- are very important, right?
2: Yeah, and I have friends that say no, impact is more than intention. But like, I'm not responsible for your reaction to to something if if my intention was there. Um, so to me, I'm I'm able to let that go, and I have the privilege to be able to let that go. Of course, yes. Um, but in its place in the canon, I think it's a kind of an interesting and exciting picture for all the reasons we've just talked about for the past hour. And I can't, I can't knock it for, uh, failing to live up to contemporary standards of, of, uh, propriety.
0: All righty. Uh, Sean. I still hate this question so much.
3: Um, <laughs> I've said that every week, <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't think I could have, I I'm with you there. I'm exactly the same sort of position as you feel. Um, and I don't think I can sort of articulate myself, um, as well as that, but so I'm going to kind of just piggyback off what you're saying and say, I completely agree with where, you, where you're where coming at um, with that. Um, I have an interesting relationship with this one in a sense that my mum is the one that got me into James Bond. And this is her very favourite film. Um, and so as a kid, not her very favourite film ever, but her very favourite James Bond film. So as a kid, if we ever watched a James Bond Are there's film. other films? <laughs> um, but if it is, if we was a kid, like this would be, she'd always sit and watch this one with me. So I kind mm. of have a bit of a nostalgic connection with it there. Um, but no, personally it sits, I guess to the top end of middle tier for me. And that is not, I don't think that's because I have much criticism of this movie. Um, it's just, I, when I was thinking about it earlier, Roger is my favorite bond, but this sits in the middle of his, his tenure for me. does. Another three I would rather watch than this. So, it no, just no. It's, it's not a knock on this movie. It's just because I think there's better Bond that is so good. I don't think this is bad. So, middle tier. Yeah.
0: All right. Good answer. So, if you're li- listening to this contemporously, Living That Diet is back in the theatre. I'm sure it's got some projectionists slightly curious as to why the picture doesn't look as wide as it should. Thanks, Guy <laughs> Hamilton. Um, but, but go and enjoy the the bright reds before Larry Digital fuck them up or something. <laughs> wow. And we'll see you next week for Man with the Golden Gun. Thanks, Phil, Ben, and Sean. My pleasure, thanks.
3: Nice. thanks. Bye.